Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. From 1936 to 1967, many African-American travelers relied on The Green Book, an annual guide listing African-American-friendly hotels, restaurants, gas stations, and other businesses. Its publisher, Victor Green, wanted to keep black travelers safe during the Jim Crow era when they could be denied service, faced harassment on the road, and more. This week, we hear from TV and radio broadcaster Alvin Hall, who set out to learn more about the Green Book and its impact. He visited a dozen cities listed in the guide and interviewed people whose lives were affected by it. His new book is aptly titled, Driving the Green Book. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Alvin Hall, you have a new book out. It's titled Driving the Green Book, A Road Trip Through the Living History of Black Resistance. So let's start with the basics. What is or was the Green Book? The Green Book was a publication created in 1936 by Victor Hugo Green and his wife, Alma. It started because Victor and Alma would drive to Richmond, Virginia during the summers for vacations to visit her parents. And during that time, they experienced during those road trips, what they called aggravations. So Victor decided to create a guide that would help African-Americans on the road find places that would offer them welcoming services. The Green Book, when it was first published in 1936, started focused primarily on New England. By 1938, it had gone up to the Mississippi, and then it spread across America. It was published every April or May until the 1966-67 edition. And its heyday was probably in the 1950s. And how it listed uh, the places was a state-by-state guide, followed by city-by-city, and then each of the locations listed under the city where African-Americans could find welcoming services and safe harbors. At its zenith, how many copies were published? You know, nobody really knows that number because no business records were kept. Everything is an estimate. So I always say it was probably hundreds of thousands of copies, but in truth, nobody really knows. How did the Green Book first come to your attention? I first discovered the Green Book on an airplane. I used to fly regularly to London, and as I typically do, I would buy magazines to read on the flight. And I read an article about traveling around America, and in a sidebar, it mentioned the Negro Motorist Green Book. And I thought, I've never heard of this publication. I've been around a long time. So I promised myself that when I came back to the US, I would go to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and see what I could find out. When I went there, Susan, I found that the Schomburg has the largest archive of the Green Book in the US. It was amazing. And they were laid out in front of me by Mira Liriano, who is a librarian there. And I was able in those days to touch them and open them up. And that began my Green Book journey. What do you think it is about the Green Book that intrigued you so much? that I didn't know about it at all, that it was a travel guide for African-Americans during Jim Crow and segregation in America, and that someone, Victor Hugo Green, a postman in Hackensack, New Jersey, came up with this idea so that 
black travelers who were in many cases experiencing the first blush of economic freedom during the great migration having moved from the south to the north and working in the automobile industry and wanting to see america had a guide that would help them protect themselves and their families and to be able to see america I, like probably other people watching or listening to us, saw a movie back in, I think, 2018 called The Green Book. And uh, you write in the book that actually seeing that movie inspired you to want to go further. What, what was it about that movie that said, I can do better with this? In 2016, I did a documentary for the BBC called The Green Book. It was 37 minutes, and it was based on a road trip that I and the producer, Jeremy Grange, took from Tallahassee, Florida, near where I was born, to Ferguson, Missouri. So it was a journey through space and time. However, that program never aired in America. And when I went to a screening of the movie, The Green Book, in 2018, I was surprised, but perhaps I shouldn't have, that nobody there knew about The Green Book the actual publication. So that sort of made me think, I really need to make this podcast happen. So I started thinking of a way to do a podcast about the Green Book. And then, as luck would have it, I walked into the Museum of Modern Art, and I remembered having seen an exhibition there called One Way Ticket about Jacob Lawrence's group of paintings called The Great Migration. At the beginning of the exhibition, there was an infographic showing how the percentages of African-Americans changed in northern cities as a result of the Great Migration. Detroit stood out. In 1910, the African-American population was 1.2% of the total. By 1970, it was over 43% of the total. And I thought to myself, that's it. All of those people who moved to Detroit came from Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And then they would have to go back home to visit relatives who may not have made that move, their parents who died there and still live there. So let's do that journey back south. And that was what led me to think I could do a better job than the movie. And in truth, Susan, the movie has almost nothing to do with the Green Book. The movie is about the driver's memories of learning about Don Shirley and the road trip. So you uh, write in the book that you were actually part of the very end of the Great Migration yourself. So where did you grow up and where did you move to? I grew up in the Florida Panhandle in a rural village. I knew nothing of the Great Migration at all. But in 1969, I was accepted to a program called Yale Summer High School. And then as a result of that program, I was accepted to Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, and I made the Great Migration North without knowing anything about this huge cultural shift that was occurring in America. So by dent of this research on the Green Book, you really learned more about your own history. That's been the most amazing part of this entire journey, both the first trip to record the BBC series and the trip to record the uh, podcast. 
I've learned so much about my own families, things that I used to look at that my parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts did as strange. Now I know where they came from. There were ways of surviving segregation and Jim Crow that were passed down generationally to young black people like myself. You uh, referenced the podcast and now you have a book. Um, you are a journalist and a storyteller. Talk to me about the two media and, and how you can tell the story differently in each one of them. When I came back from the 2021 mile road trip, 12 days to record the podcast, I first thought it would be a road trip following each city that we visited from Detroit to New Orleans. But during that road trip, Susan, I found out that we connected with people in a very deep way. And often they would say things like, oh, you may not have time for this, but let me tell you this story. And we would listen. When I came back and listened to everything that I was had recorded, I realized I had something rich. I had insights. I had wisdom. I had memories. I had the voices of the elders telling their own stories. So in the podcast, I had to take a more thematic view. What was this whole period in America about? And what did the Green Book capture more than just as a travel guide? It captured a lot more about Black entrepreneurship, black ingenuity, black joy. When I started to do the book, I recognized that in the podcast, I didn't give context to a lot of those uh, events, a lot of the stories. So I decided that people coming to the Green Book would need to know what had led to the creation of the Green Book, the situation in America that necessitated it. And I wanted to talk also about how the government participated in this creation of the need for the Green Book. And then over time, I wanted to give people a different and deeper perspective about Jim Crow laws, about segregation, about how it could vary from state to state. And then my editor said, Alvin, remember that you lived through this. So why don't you add your own personal stories to this? And that's what I did. So let's uh, dig a little deeper on several aspects of that. Back to Victor Hugo Green. What interesting name, uh, named after Victor yes. Hugo. Uh, you said that he was a, a letter carrier for the Postal Service in New Jersey. Did uh, Two questions about that. Did he continue to work as a mail carrier throughout the publication of the Green Book? And secondly, you explained that his network of other letter carriers in other states actually helped with the publication. So tell me those stories. So Victor, working as a postman in Hackensack, New Jersey, came up with this idea for the Green Book. And his first source of information was his network of friends, because he lived in Sugar Hill in Harlem. So he knew people who also traveled around New England. But as the guide began to expand, Victor could not possibly go to all those places to vet the restaurants, motels, the tourist houses listed in the Green Book. So for that, he relied upon his fellow letter carriers. There was a black postman's union and a white postman's union. And so 
Victor, who was supposedly very charming, was able to get information from both of those sources that became listings in the Green Book. So that enabled him to expand the Green Book's application across America. Victor was always concerned about the quality of the listings in the Green Book because he wanted to make sure that people had great services. He then had to get the Green Book in the hands of the users. How did he do that? First, you could order it through the mail. Then he used the Pullman porters who were part of the network of train systems across America to distribute it. The porters would carry it and then drop it off at the newsstands in black communities around the country. Then there was a man called Billboard Johnson who worked for Esso and he was able to convince Esso to carry the magazine at service station. Not all of them, but many of them carried it and Victor was able to get that out into the public. Do you have the sense or knowledge, you say there weren't any records, that this was a big moneymaker for uh, Victor Green or was this a labor of love? It was essentially a labor of love. Eventually, Victor was able to make enough money to be able to hire a staff of four women who worked on the mailing list, operations, getting things published. But he continued to work at the post office until he retired. I think that was about 1960 he retired. And from what I've read, it looks like he was having some health issues at that time. He, he did not live long after he retired. But the publication continued after he died because Alma took it over and she remained the editor of it for the remainder of its life. What about advertising? Did he take it and what role did it play in helping people know about businesses? Advertising became a key part of the Green Book at the very back of the magazine and sometimes throughout there would be these uh, banner ads, if you will, featuring places in the local communities such as uh, Vernon Shakey's Esso Station or the Lenox Lounge in Harlem or some ladies' uh, coffee shop or tea shop or eateries. So this was a source of revenue for it and made it successful and gave him the ability to distribute it to more location. So bringing in these ads was really important. It's interesting, there's a letter in the Green Book where, where uh, Victor talks about the importance of advertising and taking out ads because many of the black businesses that were featured in there or that he was trying to entice didn't have the revenue or chose not to allocate the revenue toward advertising. And he wanted to convince them that advertising in the Green Book would increase their business, the business that came their way. So it was a very interesting situation. But my understanding is that most of the businesses that he wanted to advertise in there didn't really have the capital to do it. Two small facts about the Green Book before we move on to other topics. First of all, it was green. Its cover was green. Yes, it was. And that green color changed over the years. At first, it was just type, and then eventually he was able to put images on the cover. And also, how big was it? It was about, oh, eight by maybe six. It was very small because it was designed to go into your car's glove compartment. Well, cars are what I wanted to talk with you about next. In 1936, when this book first started publishing, cars were beginning to transform America. In what ways? 
When African-Americans moved north to work in the car industry, many of them were earning more money than they had ever earned, certainly more money than they earned as, as sharecroppers or working on farms in the Deep South. So for African-Americans, it transformed their lives financially. And one of the symbols of your success that you had made it was that you were able to save up and afford an automobile. All of a sudden, owning a car gave you a different type of freedom. You were the captain of your own ship. You could, as Jamon Jordan, a, a tour guide we met in Detroit said, you could drive through those sundown towns. You could drive past those restaurants and service stations you knew wouldn't serve you and go to the ones that would. So for African-Americans, it gave them control of their lives. But still, there was a risk associated. When you took long trips, or even in your own town, if you left the safe harbor of your community and drove across a railroad track, went across a street that was a dividing line, and you were stopped by the local police, you were still at risk. But overall, the automobile gave African-Americans a freedom and a financial uh, expansiveness that they did not have before. Here's a statistic. Uh, 10 years after the Green Book was first published, 1946, uh, black folks were welcomed in only about 6% of better motels and hotels. So what did that mean for people setting out on the road for long trips? Because you knew in advance you could not stay in a hotel. Many service stations would not allow you to use the bathroom. Some would not even put gas in your car because they did not touch black people's cars. So that meant you had to prepare for the road. One of the things that families talked about, and we discussed this in the book, are the shoebox lunches, putting together the food, the fried chicken, everybody remembers the fried chicken, the tea cakes, the uh, pound cake, the deviled eggs made with no mayonnaise, right? All of those things you prepared in advance, you'd have a cooler with drinks in the car. If you were traveling with children, you would discourage them from drinking a lot of fluids so that you would not have to go to to the bathroom and make stops to go to the bathroom. We heard stories of people buying urinals for each of their children, especially their son, so they could use the urinals and they would not have to stop. So these were all the type of preparations that black people do. But there's one preparation that black people had to do that became sort of disparaged in the general culture. When you knew you were gonna be on the road for these periods of time and you had children, you needed to have a comfortable car. And because the risk of being stopped by some random white person on the road was high, you also wanted a powerful car so that if you need to escape, you would. So black people started buying big, powerful cars. So if their children needed to sleep, there was that big bench seat. If they needed to rest, they could pull on the side of the road and rest in their cars. So many people used to say, oh, black people buy big cars, they're wasting their money. There was a reason for it. It provided a form of safety and comfort for these long trips when you could not get the services on the road that most white travelers took for granted. 
not getting services is really tremendously understandable about how challenging that would be. But uh, talk about the other aspect of being pulled over or being stopped. Uh, beyond the harassment of what are you doing here, uh, really what were the risks for people when they traveled? What most people don't know is that in many Southern states, any white person could stop any black person for any reason. This could be passing them on the road. This could be driving up too close behind them in their car or driving too slow on the road, not having a taillight fixed, having a too nice car. So all of these random experiences, what you never knew was how this was going to escalate, what mood that person was in, why they were stopping you. Um, when I did the first road trip from Tallahassee to Ferguson, Missouri, uh, we interviewed Reverend Steele in Tallahassee, and he talked about a particular incident where he was driving through Georgia. I think he remembered it as Butler, Georgia, and he stopped at a service station to have his car serviced, gasoline put in. And he asked the service station attendant, who was white, could he use the bathroom? And the guy said they didn't work. The man working under the hood, checking the oil, said those bathrooms work. They just don't want you to use them. So Reverend Steele went up to the attendant and said, could you show me the bathrooms, please? Another person getting their car at the station walked up to Reverend Steele and slapped him and said, we don't like your kind around here. Reverend Steele slapped him back. And then his son came out with a gun and put it at in Reverend Steele's face. This is the type of unpredictable thing that could happen on the road. What year would that have been? That would have been in the 50s, 1950s. according to um, Reverend Steele. But those types of things are not unusual today. Um, Carl Westmoreland in, um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, told us the story when his son was at Morehouse in the 90s and he was driving around and he stopped at a service station uh, on one of the main highways in Atlanta. And the person there, right, gave him a hard time, wasn't gonna let him use the bathroom. And this was in the 1990s, he told us the story. And he just said, you know, it was, he just couldn't believe it was still happening today. And if you think about it, if it happened to you back in the 50s and 60s during Jim Crow, and then it happens to you today, how would you feel? Would you feel we've made progress? Why do you think people are holding on to these types of restrictions and limitations? All of that has to be going through a black person's mind when they have these types of encounters. Earlier, you made reference to something called a sundown town. What is that? A sundown town is a municipality. It can even be a subdivision or a suburb where black people by practice or law are not permitted to be within those limits after the sun goes down. It is, according to James Lowen in his book, Sundown Towns, one of the most quiet forms of racism that existed and in many cases still exists in America. Many people, because of Jim Crow laws, think that the South had the largest number of sundown towns. That was not the case. They were in the North. More were in the North than in the South. Indiana, Ohio, 
had huge numbers of sundown towns. And if a black person was caught in that town after the sun went down, there was no telling what could happen. A man recounted uh, that his father told them of a story about a sundown town in Georgia where a black man was caught at the sundown and he was tarred and feathered. People also forget that some of the places built for veterans returning after World War II also were de facto, de facto sundown towns. Levittown had specific covenants that said black people could not buy there and black people were not permitted to be there after sundown, unless of course you were working for a white family. And that was true for many places in America. I also wanted to follow up with the story about the Esso stations carrying the Green Book. Today we know them as Exxon through uh, yes. corporate changes over the years, but they had some other good news aspects to their relationships with, with black customers. The, uh, would you talk about the, their record in those days? Exxon was unusual at that time. And many people attribute its generosity to black people to the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers came from a long line of abolitionists. And so therefore, as the owners of Standard Oil, it makes sense that they believed in much more equitable treatment for black people. So throughout the corporation, they had black people as chemists, black people working uh, on oil refineries, black people working on oil drilling. They were throughout the company. So the company had a very different view from other oil companies in America. And it's now understandable that given that history, they would want black travelers, many of whom probably work for that company, to have access to this guide when they were traveling the roads and highways of America to try to see this country. One other aspect that seemed important to note is that they actually franchised their stations to black owners during this period. Yes, Susan. Esso, now Exxon, was, according to my research, the first of the gas stations to allow black people to own the actual station, to own a franchise. And most famously, it is Wynton Marsalis's father who owned an Exo station, an Exxon station in Louisiana. I want to move on to your 2019 road trip, uh, starting in Detroit, ending in New Orleans. How many cities did you visit? I think the total was 12. It was Detroit, Columbus, Cincinnati, Louisville, Nashville, Memphis, Jackson, Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, and New Orleans. You only forgot Selma. That's pretty impressive That's that, right. <laughs> that you remembered them in order. Uh, who went along with you on this trip? Uh, my friend and co-producer, Janae Woods Weber, who's a social activist uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. How did you decide what cities to visit? This was based on the research. Once we uh, got the commission to actually do the podcast from Macmillan, we then had to find places where people were willing to talk to us. So we hired a field producer. Her name was Kemi Aladesui, and she started doing the research. So she and I would have conversation. I said, call local historical societies, call NAACP chapters, call black sororities, black fraternities, black historical societies, anything like that in the local area 
where people would know people who had used the Green Book. And so our trip was based on where we found people who were open to talking to us about their experience, either using the Green Book, remembering people who did use the Green Book, who wanted to share on the road experiences with us, or who could talk about the community where the businesses listed in the Green Book were located. So in constructing the route, one major difference from the Green Book era and today is the presence of interstate highways. How did yes. that affect what you were able to plan? Well, what really affected what we were able to plan was the budget, because we had to shoot this podcast or record this podcast like a movie. Macmillan gave us a set budget, and we had to do all the interviews within that uh, amount of money. And that meant that while on the road, we only had 12 days total to do the entire trip. So everything was scheduled in advance. We did, however, leave open the opportunity that someone we were talking to might be able to introduce us to another person who we would make the time to interview. So the road trip was very much dictated by who we discovered and unearthed and who was generous to us during our research, but also the number of days we had given the amount of money we had in the budget. So you did 12, like 12 cities, 12 cities in 12 days? 12 cities in 12 days. In Columbus, we only stayed long enough to interview Mary Ellen Tyus before going on to um, Cincinnati. When we went to Selma, we only stopped there on our way to the next location. So some of the cities we only had one interview in, so we were able to stop and move on to the next one where we had more interviews. So understanding what you're describing, the, the more important thing was meeting people who had had Green Book experiences in their life than for you in a car trying to recreate any of the travel experiences of the period. I would say we were in the spirit of the Green Book journey on our trip. But what we really wanted to get to, Susan, were those places listed in the Green Book, the communities where they existed, because that's where the story exists. What was interesting in your book was not just these conversations, but the conversations that happened among the three of you working on the project. Three, yes. three people of three different generations. What kind of chemistry and maybe intellectual ex exchange did your working together produce? We produced some interesting conversations or reactions to what we had experienced. I am born in the 1950s during segregation and Jim Crow in a small Southern community, raised in a black community in which I was protected from a lot of this. Um, that's a very different experience from my co-producer and friend, Janae Woods Weber, who was raised by a white mother, she is biracial, in a white town in Massachusetts, who, to quote her, who learned only about African-American experience as bullet points. And our field producer, Kemi Aladasui, was born in London, raised in Nigeria, and immigrated to America to live in Springfield, Missouri. So didn't have the depth of black experience in America that I had. So we would often just 
after an interview or a conversation with somebody, we would just throw a question in the air. How did that affect you? How did that fit with what you know about American history? How did that change your view of American history? What did you feel when you were hearing that story? And we tried to be as honest as possible. We recorded many, if not most of those conversations. And I used them when I was writing the book to try to bring a different perspective, a broader perspective than just mine to the narrative that goes uh, beyond just recounting the first person stories in the book. Is it possible to explain how the three of you had your perspectives changed by those conversations? I think it is. I think for me, the times when the people we interviewed would stop and say, excuse me, uh, where are you from? And I would say, oh, the Florida Panhandle. I knew it. You sound just like my uncle such and such or my cousin such and such down there in the South. So it showed me how much I'm still connected to that world, although I live in New York City, and that a part of me will always be connected to those people who share their stories with us. I think for Janae, it really was hearing the stories of the Black elders. She was raised in a largely white community in Massachusetts where there were no older Black people to pass that rich wisdom of having lived in America, survived in America, and gained insight about white America and how to negotiate life. She didn't have that, so I think that made it richer for her. I think for Kemi, it all sorted to change when she had a very um, unexpected experience on the road. Uh, we had stopped at a service plaza and she was buying some stuff in a store and she was next in line. There was a black cashier and a white cashier. And the white cashier looked over at her and turned her back and just looked away. The black cashier looked at the white cashier, then looked back at Kimmy, shook her head and just said, come on over, come on over. Kimmy did not tell us that experience until the end of the trip. So I think for her, she was processing things about America that having been raised outside of America, she maybe had not fully experienced or didn't realize how it manifested itself in little and small ways. During the trip and during the interviews, you heard the big ways, the on the road stories, what happened within families, what happened to uncles on the road. But then to have her have that experience, I think, uh, to use her words, she's probably still processing that. We have a little bit more than 20 minutes left. And uh, for this uh, part of our interview, I wanted to let people experience in their own voices some of the interviews you did along the trip. I organized them by geography, uh, which is different than your podcasts and, and also different than the book was structured, but gives us a, a benchmark to, to walk through them. The first is Memphis that we chose, and this is an interview with Dr. Noel Trent. Uh, I'm going to play it. It's just a, a less than a minute, and then we'll come back and talk about who Noelle Trent is and what you learned from her. Everybody in my family, even to this day, if we're doing a road trip, I don't understand it. We get up at 5 a.m. 
<laughs> to this day. <laughs> to this day. I mean, especially if you're going north to south, you're, you're up at five. You know, you want to travel during the daylight. Nobody's traveling at night. I mean, you know, there's all these habits that are ingrained from that generation that was traveling during this time period. And even if, you know, especially when you don't know the route. Yeah, you're. I remember very distinctly family road trips of it being mapped out, knowing where you're stopping. You know, we're stopping here, here, and here. And this is like 20 years after the Green Book's heyday, but this is what my parents were doing. And so these are all habits that are were taught generationally um, out of the need for safety. What's Noelle Trent's story that you wanted to talk to her? Uh, Dr. Noel Trent is Director of Interpretations and Education at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, which is also the location of the Lorraine Motel. And we could not do a road trip and not stop by the Lorraine Motel because it advertised and was featured in the Green Book. It was also the place where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. And we wanted to find out about the history of the Lorraine, both before April 4th, 1968, and afterwards. And she gave us an incredible interview about the history of that iconic place and how the community worked together to save it from possible demolition. This is a story that went on all around America after the Green Book stop publication and integration occurred, and these places were no longer widely used by black people. And they had competition from white owned businesses with more capital. So to save the Lorraine was very, very important. But Dr. Trent's story, I heard again and again from Dr. Eva Bayham at Dilla University talking about her travel uh, her family's travel pattern. My family did the same thing. I think all of us were taught these things, as she said, as survival tools. Without really even understanding why when you were a little kid, it sounds like. Yes, because your parent would say, we just do it this way. It's like we talked about wanting to stop at Stuckey's, a place that was on the interstate that, would, that sold pecan rolls. And our parents would say, no, we don't do that. We, we make our own food. We have our own food with us. Full stop period. While we're talking about the history of the Lorraine Hotel, just at the sidebar, but there was an aspect of that story I'd never heard before, and that is of Lurie Bailey's death at the same time. Can you tell me that story? It, it yes. was very sad. It's very sad, and I find it still very hard to talk about or to imagine the grief of the Bailey family. On April 4th, 1968, when the shots rang out and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was killed, Lorie Bailey was on the switchboard and taking the calls and routing the calls. At some point during that day, she didn't feel well. So she said to someone else who was on the board working with her, I'm gonna go upstairs and rest. And she went upstairs. Later on, when her daughter, Caroline came in, uh, she said, one of the people said, oh, your mama went upstairs. You know, she's been up there for a while and go up to see her, what's wrong? and they discovered that she had had an aneurysm. And she died on the day that Martin Luther King's funeral occurred. So April is a really, really complicated emotional month and sad one for the Bailey family. 
But then you also add to that fact that not only did Lori Bailey die, but Walter Bailey and Caroline's husband, Dr. Champion, were the two people who cleaned up the remains of Martin Luther King from that balcony after the police had done their investigation. And as Dr. Noel Trent says, there's something very powerful and sacrosanct about that, that type of event, about that participating in history. The Baileys, uh, Mr. Bailey continued to operate the hotel for some time after. How did he treat the scene where Dr. King was murdered? From the day the assassination was happened, that room was locked off and never rented out again. He kept it as a memorial to that event. Even as the hotel spiraled downward and got into financial distress and uh, was auctioned on the steps of the courthouse in Memphis, that room remained closed to the public. It was the community spirit led by uh, a television and radio host and businessman in Memphis who said, we can't lose the Lorraine Motel. And they came together to create the Save the Lorraine Motel. And that's why that business, that's why that building still exists today. The next voice is from Jackson, Mississippi. Frank, is his last name Figures, he pronounces it? Figures. And uh, we're gonna listen to him 50 seconds and then we'll be back to you. In 10 years, one decade. 1960 to 1970. 1970. In one decade, I saw going from segregation to openness. Perhaps from 1890 here in Mississippi up until 1960, every day people woke up. Is this going to be the day? But they, whether it was going to be today or not, people say, either consciously or unconsciously, I'm going to do what I can with what I have, where I am, in order to make a better life and a fair deal. What did you learn from that conversation? That conversation is so full of the cycle of hope in the black community, the maintenance of hope in the black community. We know that that old adage about one step forward, two step backwards plays out in American culture very much like what we have seen after the Obama presidency. You can't help but make that connection given the sort of feel that we are going backwards. And I took away from that conversation the fact that we can survive because we are an optimistic people. Susan, I will tell you that that was one of the most difficult interviews for me to hear and to do because it was just like my uncle's son I was hearing his voice, the cadence, the deliberate, intentional way he spoke, even 
his accent was just like my uncle son. That was a hard interview, but it made me get in touch with that part of me that can be sustained through good times and dark times. In Jackson, you also learned about uh, the heyday of Little Harlem and Farish Street in particular, uh, yes. which was the heart of the black community in Jackson. What's it look like today? Uh, Farish Street looks abandoned and dusty. Um, there are not a lot of businesses there anymore. You, it looks like a place that it should be coming back, but then when you walk down the street, there's a layer of dust everywhere. There are a couple of businesses there still. There's Collins Funeral Home. There's the flower shop across the street. There is uh, Big Apple Cafe, which was featured in a program by Anthony Bourdain for its uh, sandwiches made of pig ears. Next voice is Hezekiah Jackson in Birmingham, Alabama. Tells a story about uh, in the car with his, his siblings and his parents. Let's listen. I recall seeing these two white officers. They said something to daddy like, uh, you lost, boy. And my brother, he almost lost it because he was like, that white man just called daddy a boy. And so we had so much respect for our dad, and daddy didn't allow nobody to disrespect him till it was almost like traumatizing to us. And daddy was looking at the ground, because we was looking right at him through the car window, and he said, no, son, I'm not lost. Uh, I'm here to pick up a package. And the other one said, uh, you ain't here to steal, you ain't stole this good-looking car. What you do for a living? You work for some rich white folk, they loan you this car? I can hear all that in my mind. Mother kept putting her finger up to her lips. The, to indicate to us that we weren't not to make a sound. Alvin Hall, you talk about this at several points in the book, the duality that parents, black parents faced on the one hand of protecting their children from explicit racism like the story we just heard, but at the same time wanting them to develop some level of protection through street smarts. Can you talk about that? Black people knew that their children were innocent and not aware of racism. And they wanted to have their children grow up and be optimistic about their future, know that they could achieve. So that meant that they had to protect their children from the harshness of the reality of racism. And that's at the heart of that Hezekiah Jackson story. Uh, how do you go about doing that? And the children get to see their parents act in a way that they do not see normally. Brian Stevenson at the Equal Justice Initiative tells a similar story about seeing his grandfather become a different person when he was in front of white people. Brian knew that his grandfather wanted to model some positive behavior for him, but he would see this other person and he came to understand it. All black parents knew that there would come a day when their children would be called the N-word, they would be stopped and harassed by the police, or something like that would happen where they would not be able to protect them. But the thing that haunts me about this story, Susan, is Hezekiah's brother's comment. You hear that man calling daddy boy. His brother is collateral damage in this event. Think about that. 
How did that affect that young kid's interaction with authority, with police later on? When people see these types of events on television, hear about them on radio, they are collateral damage. How does that affect them? That is the haunting part of that story for me. We have about seven minutes left. One last voice. This is someone you referenced earlier, Dr. Eva Bayham in New Orleans. And uh, this is about 53 seconds long, and we'll be back to you after that. The fear of being stopped in the night or the day, especially a woman with children, of being assaulted, probably, or could be raped, uh, having a car blown up or stolen or whatever, being stranded, was so great that it was best to avoid traveling through there. The backstory, I think, to this book is that here we see, although this is proactive, this was to, of course, support people in many ways, the dark side is what could happen if you went away, you strayed off this path. And it tells you in emotional ways what our people had to put up with. In our few minutes we have left, Alvin Hall, this experience of learning about the Green Book era left you with what views about America? This experience left me with a deep understanding that many people don't know about this period in America and don't want to acknowledge the impact that this long period in America had on African-Americans possibilities and aspirations in this country. I also came to understand that within the black community, there was a lot of ways that we sustained ourselves through this period of time, that the community supported each other and that there was joy that black people were able to find even in these times of restriction, joy and the imagination and ingenuity and capital to create a world parallel to the American dream. There was an optimism in creating that, create that parallel world. There was the possibility of the future being better, not only for yourself, but for your children. How much more American can that be? That's important to say because uh, along the way, you didn't only hear about stories of harassment. Many people shared happy memories of long car trips with their family, food, games, singing. So road trips were not all stressful during this time. Exactly. exactly. They, weren't, they weren't stressful. And there were places like Idlewild, Michigan, Fox Lake uh, in uh, Angola, in Illinois, Oak Bluffs, places where high achieving black people could go for summers and spend summers away from what today is called the white gaze, surrounded by all black people having a wonderful time, not having to deal with the aggressions and microaggressions of Jim Crow segregation and racism in America. So black people remain optimistic. That's been the greatest thing about writing this book. It enabled me to capture the grace in the black community. And when I read the book, I still know that what I tried to do was not only to pass on the wisdom and experiences and firsthand experiences of the people I interviewed, but their grace at understanding, surviving, and passing on 
optimism and a sense of achievement to their children. And to bring the conversation full circle, how did you come to understand the importance of the Green Book itself to history? I came to understand that the Green Book helped African-Americans survive a very difficult time. It also enabled them to negotiate between safe harbors, unknown territories in America, where you did not know what was going to happen. But it also was an act of resistance, saying, we're not going to take this anymore, but of resilience. See what we can do as people, as Americans, to create a brighter future, to make our lives livable and enjoyable. If someone were to pick up a copy or a digital copy of the Green Book today, would they find it useful or is it a timepiece? The actual Green Book today is a timepiece. It's really a record of different growth in different cities, how people use their entrepreneurial abilities, their capital to build businesses. I think this is one of the few records in many cities of the business areas and the black histories in those cities, how the businesses change. But the Green Book is being reimagined by contemporary people as marketing tools to help people shop black to, to uh, use the services of black businesses. It's also available online in different ways and different manifestations to help people find places uh, where they could be comfortable when they're on vacation. So the spirit of the Green Book exists today. Victor Hugo's message goes on, but it's being interpreted by a new generation in light of society the way it exists now. Alvin Hall is our guest for the last hour. His new book and podcast are available. The book's title is Driving the Green Book, A Road Trip Through the Living History of Black Resistance. Thanks so much for the time. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 